Welcome to Scotts Hill Online. My name is Jeff Poteet and I get to serve as the discipleship pastor here at Scotts Hill. Can you believe that we are in our 12th week of online only services, but, but great news ahead that this is our final week of, of all of our deliveries being online. And, and this coming Sunday, next Sunday, we're gonna be able to gather together again as a faith family to worship and exalt God together. We are so looking forward to this opportunity. We've been preparing for it. We're looking forward to your arrival. And as we do so, we just wanna to, to remind you and to encourage you once again, to go online to scottshill.org and check out our information as it relates to our plan and how you can be a part of that great service. It's gonna be a great time of celebration for us and we want you to be a part of it if you are comfortable being here. Now today we're gonna to be continuing in our series, The Parables of Jesus with, with a parable from Luke chapter 18. Uh, Luke chapter 18 verse uh, nine through 14 is the passage that we're gonna be looking at today. So if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles and, and turn there with me, we're going to read that passage here in just a few moments together. But as we do, we need to remind ourselves of, of one important truth about parables and about what Jesus is trying to do with his parables. We, we understand that parables are an, an earthly story with a heavenly truth. Parables are an earthly story with a heavenly truth. And Jesus uses these masterfully to help convict and expose truths and realities for us so that we can grow in our knowledge of him, we can grow in our relationship with him, and we can be a faithful member of his kingdom. So if you will uh, read with me in Luke chapter 18, this is what we read. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. And Lord, we thank you uh, that we have the ability and opportunity right now as your people to hear from you and for your Holy Spirit to interpret it for us and to apply it in our lives. We pray that in these next few moments that you would do a great work in our hearts, that you would uh, challenge us and transform us to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now you might be sitting there thinking or standing there, however you're receiving this today. You might be thinking now, Jeff, you said that we were going to be looking at verses 9 through 14, but you only read verses 10 through 13. Well, I would uh, congratulate you and say you're very astute in your observation of what we just did. Uh, the reason that we started in verse 10 is because uh, we have to gain a proper context of this parable for the truth that Jesus is trying to communicate to us to really take its full effect in our lives. You see, if, if we were to be receiving this that day, there wouldn't have been a commentary necessarily on the front end of it. There would just have been the story that Jesus told. So if we had heard this story from Jesus's lips with no commentary, we might've just thought, this is just kind of like the societal norms of the day. There's nothing really exciting about the beginning part of this story. In the story, we have two people, two characters, a tax collector and a Pharisee. Really, 
really uh, people that are existing in that time uh, of the first century. These people are doing things that are not really that uncommon. They are going up to the temple to pray. Their posture even is not really that outstanding. Standing to pray is, is a posture that the Bible talks about regularly. So even their posture isn't something that is really that unique. But as we read this, we have to connect our reading to the context. We have to connect our reading to the lens of a first century hearer so that we can understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. Really the, the shocking nature of his, uh, his declaration in this passage. You see, as we think about the people in this story, we already have uh, a thought about what a Pharisee is, don't we? Even when I say that word, you probably have an image in your mind or you have a picture in your mind or a thought in your mind about somebody who is harsh and hypocritical somebody who's demeaning, somebody who uh, puts rules on people that they're not willing to obey. You can think of even the reality that, that the Pharisees are the ones that killed Jesus. And so in our minds, we have already got a bad association with Pharisees. But in, in the first century, that might not have been the case. In, in reality, Pharisees weren't thought of that negatively in their day. In fact, they probably had a more positive uh, appearance in their lives. Uh, whenever the first century here would have thought about a Pharisee. They would have thought about a churchman, somebody who was a regular attender in the life of a church. Uh, they would have thought about somebody who was a, a Bible student and, and not just like, you know, somebody who can read the Bible every now and again, but somebody who was extremely studious. So you can think of the person who has, you know, all the, all the, the tabs on the side of their Bible, the people that might uh, have highlighters, every different kind of color, you know, red, green, orange, and, and highlight different parts of the Bible or underline it and double underline it and circle things and have arrows pointing to other parts of the scripture. They were scrupulous with the law. They, they took time in being philanthropic and, and, and doing things in their community. Not only this, you could think about their prayer lives. Wow, I mean, that's, that's something that would have been astonishing to people. They had long prayers that they would pray in people's hearing. You know, this might've been the guy that would have been asked to pray at the church potluck dinner for, for the food as they gathered to eat a meal. And if we think about it kind of in our current context, uh, an image or a thought that comes to mind about how they might've been perceived would be somebody kind of like a Mother Teresa, uh, somebody who, who knew the Bible and who gave to people and who uh, seemed to be a model of godliness. I mean, you could even maybe hear people as, as this person is being described in their prayer and think to yourself, you know, he, he prays and he's not like that. You know, he, he doesn't do any of those things. And, you know, he does do all those things. And in the mind of those first century hearers, even as Jesus is telling this, they might've been thinking, wow, man, I would love to be like that guy. I bet he is so close to God. And then the other character in the story, the tax collector. The tax collector, he is really a crook. He's a collaborator with the Roman government. Uh, tax collectors were despised and, and generally regarded by the Jewish people as traitors to their own nation. They were hated in a variety of ways. In fact, whenever, whenever you consider a tax collector in this day, their testimony wasn't admissible in the court of law. They weren't believed for really anything. Uh, if you had a tax collector in your family, they were a disgrace to your family. You didn't want anybody to know that you had a tax collector in your family. 
Not only that, a tax collector is about the only person in this culture that you could make a promise to and really have no intention or expectation to keep that promise. They were very lowly regarded. They were not uh, prioritized or encouraged or helped. They were, they were really those who were excluded from all religious activities and fellowship in the life of the temple. Uh, a way that we could kind of think about them. And it's kind of a humorous picture, but think about the, the Sheriff of Nottingham in, in Disney's Robin Hood. You know, whenever he came around, nobody wanted him there. They all wanted him gone. They always knew he had a, a, an underlying motive that he was going to try and steal a little bit of extra money or, or that, uh, real, realizing how he was in collusion and cahoots with the local government and his prayers. I can just imagine as, uh, as the people hear Jesus talking about this prayer. Uh, this, is, this is the guy who whenever, people come, whenever he comes into the church, there's whispering, you know, the, the murmurings, you know, can you believe he's here? Can you believe that he has come to church today? Can you, did you see him? That's the tax collector. And so whenever he prays, there might even be kind of a, a chuckle or a laughter. And that, that, that prayer was pitiful. All he did was ask God for mercy. I mean, really, if we think about it, that's really what he needs because he has nothing else going for him. So here we have these two characters. We have a Pharisee who in that day would have been well thought of by the people. And you have the tax collector who was despised even, even by his own family members. He was, he was not somebody that even his mother would be proud of. And yet whenever we see Jesus beginning to speak, it's in this context that Jesus takes the understanding of the people. He takes their perception and about what it means to be in a right relationship with God. And he, he flips it upside down. I would say he doesn't just flip it upside down. He, he completely dismantles their view of what it looks like to be in a right relationship with God. And now it's with, with that context in mind, the understanding of those two characters that I want us to read this passage again with those things in mind. So let's start in verse number nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." the crowd would have been stunned. You can just imagine the, the air being sucked out of that room and people gasping, looking around at each other saying, did he just say that? And kind of with bewildered eyes and bewildered looks saying, I, th I think he did. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what he said. 
I kind of imagine it like the game show Family Feud. Steve Harvey comes out and, and he says, we've surveyed 100 people and the, the top one answer is on the board. In this story, a Pharisee and a tax collector, who do you think is right with God? Everybody hits their buzzers. And immediately the answer from pretty much everybody would be the Pharisee. The Pharisee is who we would expect to be justified in this story. But that's not what Jesus says. No, Jesus doesn't say the Pharisee. Jesus says the tax collector. The tax collector is the one who goes down to his house justified. Can you imagine the responses from people in that crowd after the shock wears off? Think about the people that respond with anger. How dare you say that about me, Jesus? For some, the piercing reality of their life and the conviction of the Holy Spirit may have taken root in that moment. And they have been reminded of who God is and who they are. For some, there may have been tears of joy. Maybe there were people who looked around and saw the lives of the Pharisees and those who were religious. They said, we can never measure up to that. And so to hear Jesus say that there was hope could have brought tears of joy. But regardless of which side they were on, in this story, there is a peeling back of their earthly realities to expose the truth and the treasure of the heavenly realities, especially regarding how a person might be made right with the holy God. I want us to notice in this passage a few important movements that Jesus takes us through. The first movement that we see in this passage really is about Jesus's indictment. The first movement deals with Jesus's indictment. Jesus addresses those in the crowd and by extension, all who would hear and read this story in the future. He addresses those who believe that they are right with God in a right relationship with God because of something that they do or something that they accomplish. And we can even break this indictment down into, into really two other uh, distinct truths. We see the first thing that Jesus reminds us in this is that distinct morality doesn't make me right with God. Distinct morality doesn't make me right with God. You'll notice how the Pharisee applauds himself. He applauds himself for his morality, for the things that he doesn't do, along with the things that he does do. He reminds himself as he is praying to himself in many ways that he is not unjust, that he is not an extortioner, that he is not an adulterer. He's not even like this tax collector. He's reminding himself of his extreme high moral resume. He is uh, not like the other men of his day. In fact, he's head and shoulders above them in terms of morality. We also see in this passage that Jesus reminds us that dedicated ministry doesn't make me right with God. Dedicated ministry doesn't make me right with God. We see this in how Jesus is talking about this Pharisee and what he does in, in, in terms of his ministry. Uh, the Old Testament only required one fast a year. And that fast was in relation to the day of atonement. But the Pharisees, they fasted twice a week. So they actually fasted 103 times more than the law required. 
And not only this, we see that he talks about how he tithes on all that he gets. Now, it's important to remember that there are tithe laws in the Old Testament regarding uh, giving from what you have earned. But the Pharisees took it a step further. Not only did they give on what they earned, they, they tithed on everything. They tied on every herb that they got, every spice that they got, every single thing they had, they tithed on. They were exemplary in their ministry accomplishments. But Jesus reminds them as, uh, as he is sharing this prayer that neither their distinct morality nor their dedicated ministry makes them right with God. You see, uh, he is reminding them over and over and over again through this short little few sentence parable that whatever their context is, whether it's in a temple or whether it's in a church, people who believe that they are right with God based on their accomplishments, based on their good works are really only justifying themselves. They're really only justifying themselves because their standard of righteousness is always based on a comparison with other people. Jesus is saying, they're just looking around and seeing who they're better than and they're assuming that their righteousness is good enough to get them into a relationship with God. You see, their, their view of righteousness is kind of like looking at a forest from a, from a side view. You see, there are hundreds of trees, all various heights, all various levels, and a righteousness that is based on my own accomplishments, looks around the, the forest, if you will, and says, as long as I am more righteous than the tree next to me, as long as my works are better than the tree next to me, then I must be right with God. As long as I'm just a little bit better than the one next to me and I'm not worse than the other side of me, then I am probably right with God. You see, Jesus is reminding us of a very, very key truth here. He's reminding us this, that good works are a reflection of our right relationship to God, not the reason for it. Good works are a reflection of our right relationship to him, not the reason for it. And in this crowd, even though they are distinctly moral and even though they are dedicated in ministry, they are still alienated from God. They're still in their trespasses and sin. They're still enemies with God. And the worst thing is they can't even see their own lostness because it's hidden behind a facade of ministry and morality. As Jesus addresses this group, he not only shows them what morality and ministry don't do in bringing them into a right relationship with God. He also shows them what it does in terms of their relation with other people. Uh, notice uh, that these, these people who, um, who trust in themselves, that they are righteous, they treat others with contempt. They treat others with contempt. And that word contempt is an interesting word. Uh, it literally is dealing with the reality of, of treating people as if they're nothings or nobodies or less thans. So they, they have a perspective and a view to those around them that they look down on them. They look down on them because their morality is not the same standard as those of the Pharisees. And not only uh, do they have contempt towards other people, there is this insidious root of pride that has taken hold of their hearts 
and they've elevated themselves almost to the position of the righteousness of God. Jesus reminds them as he tells this story that that these things do not accomplish a righteousness with God. That these things, these works, these accomplishments, these activities are not what make us right with God. Then Jesus in his gracious way, even though it is a direct way, turns their attention, we see Jesus's invitation. We see that he turns to an invitation, an invitation to all those that are there. And rather than leaving this crowd in suspicion, rather than leaving them in confusion or self-deception, Jesus invites his hearers to consider how a person can truly be in a right relationship with a holy God. And we see that Jesus teaches us this Uh, In reality, he teaches us this by teaching us that divine mercy is what makes me right with God. The only way for us to be right with God is for divine mercy to make me right with God. You see, in stark contrast to the Pharisees, to their posture, to them standing in the front of the temple, them walking to the front of the temple and, and praying in such Uh, great and magnificent prayers where everybody can see them, everybody can hear them, and everybody can applaud them. Notice the posture of the tax collector. The tax collector stood far off. Tax collector knew he wasn't worthy to be in the presence of God. There was no confusion in his heart or in his mind that he had no place before God that he was unworthy, and he knew this. We see this in his posture. Though he was standing, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Rather than the Pharisee who wanted to acknowledge his righteousness before God or his good works before God and to receive approval for them, the tax collector knew that as God peered into his soul, that there was no righteousness there. There was no righteousness to be found. And with contrition, with a contrite heart, we see him beating his breast, a sign of humility, a sign of repentance, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, we see something really interesting here. The tax collector didn't go to the temple and and say, God, I need you to give me a a plan. God, I need you to give me five steps to to right relationship with you. I need you to give me some things that I can do to clean up my life so that you'll have me. Instead, he recognizes that the only way to be in a right relationship is for God to extend mercy to him. And he understands clearly what Jonathan Edwards says when he says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Uh, This is the reality of what this tax collector is saying. The tax collector has a proper view of the righteousness of God and the righteousness that is required. He has a heavenly perspective on righteousness. And so rather than comparing his righteousness to those around him, comparing his abilities with those around him, he's looking at it more from like an aerial view of a forest where You look down upon the forest and and all the trees look to be the same height. They all look as if they are the exact same height. And 
as we consider the reality of this before God's gaze, before God's eyes, everyone's righteousness is the same. And guys, here's a spoiler alert for you. It's none. Before a holy God, we have absolutely no righteousness inherent in ourselves. And yet to be accepted by God, we have to have perfect righteousness. So Jesus is painting this picture for us. We have an impossible, eternally impossible situation before us that we can't overcome, that we can't do enough good things to get out of, which is exactly what the tax collector is pointing us to. He's helping us to see as this character in Jesus's story that our righteousness has to come from outside us, not inside us. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. If we can't be righteous based on our works, then it depends solely on the basis of God's mercy. And this word merciful that that Jesus uses here, uh, that the tax collector is uttering. It's, it's one of those uh, $5 theological words for, for you to go ahead and maybe write down in your notebook and, and whenever you're at your next connect group cook out, you can bring this, this word out and you guys can talk about what it means as it relates to you. The word that he uses for merciful, the, the underlying word is the word propitiation. It is the word propitiation. And so in essence, the tax collector is saying, God, propitiate me. And you might say, well, what does that mean? What, what does that word mean? And really it means this. It means, please take away my sin, cover my sin, and also remove your judgment from me. Remove your wrath from me. So if we wanted to put it in kind of a, uh, a, a, a close to our language kind of term, he might say something like this. God, please take away my sin. Remove your judgment and your wrath from me. I know that I'm a sinner. And God, I know that my only hope is you. Would you have me today? And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how is this mercy mediated to us? How does it come to us? And I want you guys to check this out. This is, this is just a phenomenal connection in the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter two, we see this. We see, therefore he meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And what does he do? Here we see, to make propitiation. This is the same word that he uses in Luke chapter 18, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So how is it that this mercy comes to us? It's Jesus. It's Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. It's the only means, he's the only means by which sinful man can be in a right relationship with a holy God. You see, friends, in this passage, Jesus is teaching us that there's only one kind of person that can be in a right relationship with God. There's only one kind of person. Regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of experience, affluence, cultural relevance or popularity, there's only one. There's only one kind of person that can be right with God. 
And it's the person who sees themselves first as a sinner before a holy God. It's the person who looks away from themselves for help and for hope, for being made right in his sight and who cast aside any attempt at cleaning up their act or getting themselves together before they go to God. The amazing thing is, as we go to him and say, God, would you, would you satisfy your judgment in another way? Would you, would you count me as righteous in Jesus? God and his grace and his mercy reminds us that he has accomplished this in Jesus's death and resurrection. And the one who would be right with God, that one kind of person is the one who puts their hope and their trust in Jesus alone, puts their hope and their faith and their trust in his work, in his life, that he obeyed the law perfectly, in his death, that he provided propitiation, that he provided forgiveness of sins and in his resurrection that we can have hope and eternal life. And Jesus says in our parable, as I tell you, this man went down to his home justified. Justified is another way of saying that he was counted righteous. I tell you that this man went down to his house counted righteous rather than the other. This man, this sinner that by all accounts had no standing before God, who had no hope before God, is the one who acknowledged that truth, acknowledged his unrighteousness and pleaded with God to cover him, pleaded with God to accept him, not based on his work because he knew his work was none, but based on the mercy of God brought to us in the work of Jesus Christ. Christian, did, did you know that one of the purposes of God in saving you is to show that he can save any sinner that comes to him by faith? And you might bristle at that and say, well, you don't really know me. I'm really not that bad of a guy. Jesus didn't really have that much work to accomplish or that many sins to forgive. And to you, Jesus says, really? Really? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were, you were an object of wrath like the rest of mankind. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. You were not righteous according to Romans chapter three. But I showed you mercy. I bought you at the price of my own life. If I can save you, then I can save anybody. And Jesus is teaching us this as, as we see this, this changes us. It changes us from a, a view of self-righteousness and believing that our works have earned us a relationship with God, which leads to contempt for others and pride in our hearts. This view that recognizes that before God, we have no standing apart from Jesus brings us to a point of humility, humility in receiving all that God has given us, humility towards others and how we perceive them and how we talk to them and how we talk about them. And it also moves us to a place of service in our lives. No longer are we the ones that are seeking to be served 
because we've earned it. We are the ones that serve because Christ has served us. So as we close this morning, I have some questions for us, some questions of reflection to consider in our own hearts and in our own lives. If this work of the gospel has taken root in us, what that looks like, and then also what it looks like for it to take root in our lives outwardly. So here's a few questions for us. How has the gospel changed me inwardly? And you can answer these questions. Do I live as if God owes me something? Do I live as if God owes me something? That's the view of self-righteousness, to think that I have done something that makes God owe me, whether it's health, whether it's money, whether it's anything. Does God owe me something? Do I find myself regularly thanking God for his kindness to me? Do you find yourself in your prayer times, not just saying, God, I demand that you do this, but saying, God, thank you for your unspeakable kindness to me. I didn't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. And yet you bless me abundantly and richly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you live with peace and joy that your sins are forgiven? Or are you anxious wondering if you've done enough for God. The the conversation of your soul, is it a conversation of rest and peace and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done? Or is is it a constant wondering? Is there a constant conversation thinking, oh, have I done enough today? Have I done enough? If I was to die today, would that be enough good stuff that I've done for God? These are questions that can help us inwardly. And then lastly, is my obedience based in fear of punishment? Or is it in love for the Lord? Do you do what you do because you think, if I don't do that, God's gonna zap me with a a lightning bolt from heaven? Or do you do it because because you love him? Because you want him to be honored and pleased with your life? That you're so grateful that he would save you, that you would give your life for the good of other people? Now, some questions for us to think about if the gospel's taken root in us in how we are changed outwardly. First, the question is, do I tend to look down on others because they are not as moral as me. When you look around at society, when you look around at your neighborhood and your neighbors and maybe even your own family members, do you, do you respond to people with an air of super morality because you don't do those things and you would never do those things or you can't imagine doing those things? Or do you respond to people saying, except for the grace of God, I would do the exact same thing. I would be in the exact same places. Do you recognize your own sinfulness and then respond to others with humility and grace? Or do you respond to them with contempt? You cast them aside and out of your lives. Do I harbor forgiveness, unforgiveness toward others? Or am I willing to forgive? This is a way that the gospel takes root in our relationships. Do I hold on to those things that have been done against me? Or am I willing to forgive? Do you find yourself talking about people and their issues rather than talking to people about their issues? This, is, this would be more along the lines of the sin of gossip. Do you find yourself talking about people behind their backs or do you find yourself in love going to them and saying, brother or sister, I see that you're walking in a dangerous path and, and it's not just because I think that that's the right way to go, it's because that's what God would have us to do. Do you go and talk to people rather than talking about people. 
Do I tend to cater to my own preferences at the expense of others? Or do I prefer others and seek their good even at the expense of my desires? Do you find yourselves with the uh, Philippians chapter two mindset that you're gonna count others as more important than yourselves, that you're not going to do anything from self, uh, self-conceit or, or in ways that are just going to be serving you? Do you find ways to serve others? When I think of sharing the gospel, who do I think needs it the most? This is a, a question that I think should be on the forefronts of our minds because I believe that it has to do with what we believe about the gospel. If I presented to you two people, a drug addict who has been in and out of rehab, who has now taken to thievery so that he can continue to uh, enable his drug habit, or the wealthy executive that lives in the gated community whose life seems to be all together, who maybe is on the board of the Red Cross and who does all kinds of philanthropy opportunities. If I asked you, which one of these two people needs the gospel the most? I think that we can begin to see that in our lives, we have, we have bought into this view that if your life is falling apart, if things aren't going good for you, then the gospel's for you. And the gospel is good news for you. But if you've got your life pretty much all figured out, then it's really not gonna be of that much value to you. That's taking a view that says, as long as my righteousness is better than the tree beside me, then I'm okay. Rather than taking an aerial view that says, before God, whether I'm a wealthy executive or whether I am a drug addict, my need for righteousness is the same. And only in Christ can I have that relationship with him. Oh, friends, I I wonder how many nice people will go to a Christless eternity because we failed to see their need from a heavenly perspective. And then the last question for us is, am I zealous to share the gospel with others? If I really recognize that people's need before God is to be rightly connected to him and receive his mercy brought to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus? Am I zealous to take that message to them or am I content with them going to a Christless eternity? Am I content with them not hearing the message because I'm fearful of what they're gonna think about me or what they're gonna say about me? Friends, we have a great responsibility as we, as we hear this word of the Lord today. Two men went up to the temple to pray. A Pharisee, and a tax collector. Only one went down to his house justified that day. What about you? Which one are you in the story today? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray even now that you would grip our hearts, even in the the deep and dark recesses where nobody else knows where everybody sees the outward life that we have put on display, where they see the works that we do and the acts that we do, but deep down we know. We know that we're not in a right relationship with you. We know that we're trusting our own abilities because we want the praise for ourselves. Father, I pray that you would take this parable and that you would root out that pride, that you would root out that unbelief and that you would bring us into a right relationship with you. Would you help us to see our true 
need and cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. Your word tells us that you are a faithful God who will forgive us of all of our trespasses. Father, I pray today for those who are wondering that they would find rest for their souls. For those who are asking the question, am I right with God, that they might find hope in Christ. I pray that you would use this even in our hearts to motivate us to love others with the kind of compassion that you've shown to us. Lord, we know that your word tells us that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in our humility. Help us to grow in our love for others, rooted and based in the gift of righteousness that you've given us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.